please turn to Hebrews chapter 8 in your Bibles, Hebrews 8. And the fellows have some Bibles to distribute. If you need one, just get their attention as they make their way down the aisle so that you can follow along as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 together. There is an outline for our message that was inserted in your program. If you want to take a look at that, I would encourage you to do so. Hebrews chapter 8. One of the myriad cable channels that one can get these days. I just have to stop and say I marvel at the myriad number of selections we have. Since I can remember, and some of you can remember, when you had two, four, seven, and maybe 50 if you had a UHF antenna. But anyway, one of the hundreds of channels available now is True TV. I think it used to be Court TV. And they have a slogan that says, Not reality, actuality. Not reality, actuality. Well, most of us use reality and actuality as, as synonyms. And I don't claim to have the definitive understanding of what they mean by that, but I think it means that in contrast to all the reality shows out there, where you watch to see what might happen, they show what actually did happen. So it's not just potential, but it's actual. They show us, and then we can see, can witness what happened. But what the reality shows and the actuality shows have in common is that they both really claim that what is real, whether it's yet to occur or whether it actually has occurred, what is real is what you can see. And you all know that this is implicit in the belief system of most people, isn't it? What's real is what I can see and touch and taste and hear. And if you talk about things that are not in those categories, things like ideas and doctrines and transcendent truths, then you're not, quote, living in the real world. Because what's real is what's here and now, what I can see and touch, hear and taste. That great theologian, Billy Joel, said it many years ago in his song, Allentown. It's a song about a Pennsylvania steel town that had fallen on hard times and in turn so had its residents. He says, well, we're waiting here in Allentown for the Pennsylvania we never found. For the promises our teachers gave, if we worked hard, if we behaved. And so the graduations hang on the wall. But they never really helped us at all. No, they never taught us what was real. Iron and coke, chromium, steel. Now one could not write a more clear materialist's creed. You know what I mean by that? A materialist's creed. A creed is a statement of what you believe. And a materialist is one who believes that matter, things like iron and coke and chromium steel, are what's real. The matter, the material that I can perceive with my senses is all there is. And you hear the materialist creed all the time. Seeing is what? 
a picture says, says it all. And if we fall into the trap of believing that what we can see is all that's going on, all that's real, it will profoundly affect the way we live. And so the slogan, you only go around once, so go for the gusto, that's the motivational speech of the materialist. Matter is what is, what's real. You'll find yourself when you speak of investments, you'll immediately think of what you're thinking of. Money, finance, not treasure in another world. Beyond the one that I can see and hear and taste and feel. And when you live according to what works best in the here and now, in the so-called real world, you're actually doing nothing other than the philosophy of the pragmatist. Again, flowing from the notion that this is the real world. Or you'll become the hedonist who seeks pleasure in what he can see and feel and taste. If you live by the lie that reality is only what's here and now, and your life and your world consists simply of what you have here, right now. Things like your house and your family and your job and your health. If you believe that's all there is, then you will fall apart when one or more of those is gone. When one of those is taken from you, you will find yourself saying things like, my world is falling apart. Let's reverse that. It's not just that if you lose some of these things, house, family, job, health, you'll say, my world is falling apart. Conversely, if you say, friends, or if you are saying right now, if you've said, my world is falling apart, then it's really an indicator of what your world consists of. What you consider to be all there is, all there really is. But notice what Jesus said. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying there is life, there is real life that is more than matter. More than material. And so you see, friends, life is more than we can see. Much more than we can see. And Jesus Christ is the one who enables us to see it. To see life really. To see life totally and fully. He opens our eyes so that we can perceive and believe what we cannot see. In other words, Jesus gives us faith. That's what faith is. It's believing. And in particular, it's believing what I don't see. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. He gives us faith, and it's faith in Jesus that the author of Hebrews is seeking to point us to. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, one of the points I want you to see, one of the major points I want you to see, is that the writer of Hebrews is pulling the curtain back on a real world that exists beyond this world. And he's calling us to believe in that, and having believed in that, then live according to that belief. 
Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us as we look at Hebrews chapter 8. Father, we come to you praying to you who we cannot see. We see the effects of all that you have done. Lord, we experience the effects of what you have done and are doing in our hearts if we have come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't see you. And not seeing, we still believe. We have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he represents and all that he calls us to do. Lord, our faith is weak. Our belief is weak sometimes. We find ourselves constricting the size of our lives to just what's going on in the here and now. And thus we become materialists. Oh, Lord, lift our eyes this morning as we look into your word and help us to see that what is real includes and must include all that is beyond this current world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The book of Hebrews is attempting to point people who are steeped in the teaching and customs of the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. It's seeking to point those people and show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that's provided there in the Old Testament. And therefore, they must give their allegiance to the one who has completed what the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, could only anticipate. Some might say to the writer of Hebrews, as apparently some were, but you know, we can see the priests and we can see the sacrifices at the temple. It appears that the temple still existed at the time the book of Hebrews was written. It would be destroyed in 70 AD, some of you know. Hebrews was apparently written sometime before that. And so they they still had the temple and they still had priests offering sacrifice in the temple. And folks would say, we can see the priests and the sacrifice of the temple. We can read the commandments on which all of that's based in the law of Moses. So why should we give that up for something new and someone that we can't see? The writer of Hebrews' answer is, he has been seen, one. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 4, back in chapter 2 and verse 4, The writer of Hebrews makes the case that Jesus' work was seen while he was on earth. And it was attested to by miraculous signs done by, quote, those who heard him. Those who were with him and now serve as testimonies to what he did. He has been seen. His work has been reported faithfully. But the writer of Hebrews also says that his work as a priest, as the only priest for God's people... Friends, I'm not a priest. You have no priest except the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says he's the only priest for God's people and his work continues even now, though you don't see it. And so in verse 1 of Hebrews 8, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Do you see that the writer of Hebrews is addressing the objections that these folks might have? We can see the priests in the temple. It's here. It's among us. It's happening. He's saying, 
there is a temple beyond what you can see. And there's a ministry taking place on the part of your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, beyond what you can see. And so he's telling those people and he's telling us as well, as I say in the outline that we provided for you. Jesus is the way to reality. Jesus is the way to seeing what is real, even beyond what we can see in the here and now. And why is that? It's first because of his position. Verse 1 tells us that this high priest, Jesus, sat down. Now, if you know anything about what priests did, the one thing they could never do was sit down. Because the truth is, their work was never done. You offer sacrifice, but that sacrifice was only as good as the time until the next sin you commit. That could be very short, couldn't it? The truth of the matter is, you can't even count all the sins that we commit if you consider that sin is a matter not of just what I do, but sin is a matter of what I think and I say, but not just of what I think, say, and do, but what I fail to think, say, and do that God has commanded me to do. And so the priest's work was never done. And the highest proof of Jesus' superiority is that he's sitting down. He's seated. The Levitical priests, in the first part of your Bible, Levitical, it's a big word. It just means these guys came from the tribe of, of Levi. And they served as the priests. They never sat down. And so just turn your page over to chapter 10 for a moment. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's why we have no priest today. It is why when we observe the Lord's table, communion, as we did just a few weeks ago, we are not, as churches all across the world, as I speak, are doing right now. They are re-sacrificing, this is their own words, re-crucifying Jesus. And what happens for those who take part in the Mass is that the sins committed since the last Mass are now covered. But only until the next sin you commit, which will need to be covered again. The writer of Hebrews is dogmatic. This priest sits down. He's finished his work. No priest in the first part of your Bible ever finished his work. He could never sit down. The job was never done. More and more sacrifices. Did you know that in the temple, God gives us a very meticulous description of the furniture there. And one of the things missing is any sort of seat or a chair. No place to sit down. Because the work is never done. There's actually one seat in the Holy of Holies called the mercy seat. Thanks be to God. But no priest would ever presume to sit on the mercy seat. It would be blasphemous indeed. 
And so the priests would go into the Holy of Holies in fear and in trepidation and in a sense of awe. And they would do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And then they would turn around and get out as quickly as possible. They were sinful and it was a fearful thing to be in the presence of a holy and living God. But there was never any sitting down. Jesus has sat down. And he has sat down because his words on the cross are true. It is finished. And Jesus' work accomplished on the cross is now continuing on our behalf as our high priest at the very throne room of God. S. Lewis Johnson, famous preacher of old, now with the Lord, tells a story of an evangelist in England, Ebenezer Wooten. And he had conducted a series of meetings one summer. And he says, when the last meeting had been held, the crowd was melting slowly away, and the evangelist was engaged in taking down his tent. And as he was taking it down, a young man approached him and asked rather casually, rather than, more casually rather than earnestly, Mr. Wooten, what must I do to be saved? And the preacher looked up, kind of took his measure of the young man, and he said, too late. And he said it in sort of a matter-of-fact kind of way, glancing up from his obstinate tent peg with which he had been struggling, too late, my friend, it's too late. The young fellow was startled out of his indifference, and he said, oh, don't say that. He had a new note of pleading coming into his voice. Surely it's not too late just because these meetings are over. Yes, my friend, the evangelist said, dropping the cord in his hand, straightening up, looking right into the face of his questioner, it's too late. You want to know what you must do to be saved? And I tell you, you're hundreds of years too late. The work of salvation is done. It's finished. It was finished on the cross. And Jesus said so with the last breath that he drew. What more do you want? He sat down. Why? Because it's finished. And when we ask, what can I do to be saved? The truth is there's nothing that we can do to be saved. And to say that there's something that I can do to be saved is to besmirch the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sat down. And he seated Verse 1 tells us of Hebrews chapter 8. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's not only seated, signifying his completed work, but he's at the most honored place, the, the right side of a, of, of a king or of a magistrate was the seat of honor. And Jesus is seated in this honored position, having completed his work for our salvation. But the Bible tells us he's still working. Verse number two, he serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. Jesus is seated at the right hand, but he also serves because that's the kind of savior he is. I have come to serve. He that would be first must be last among you. That's the kind of savior that we follow. One of the greatest of the Roman emperors was Marcus Aurelius. As an administrator, history tells us he was unsurpassed. He died at 59, having worked himself to death in the service of his people. When chosen to become emperor, 
His biographer, Capitolinus, tells us that, quote, he was appalled rather than overjoyed. And when he was told to move to the private house of the emperor, it was with reluctance, excuse me, it was with reluctance that he departed his mother's home. Why? Because Marcus Aurelius saw kingship in terms of service and not of majesty. And that's why Jesus was willing to leave the throne of God on our behalf. And even now, return to his glory and the throne, he still is serving on our behalf. Jesus is the way to reality because of the exalted position that he has. Seated, right hand of God, serving. But notice in your outline as well, because of his pattern. Verse 3 tells us this. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. What's it mean? Verse 3 says, every priest offers gifts and sacrifices. And so this one, this high priest, to whom I'm pointing you, Jesus Christ, had to offer something as well. What was it that Jesus offered? He offered himself in sacrifice for the sins of his people. But some might still object. If he's a superior high priest, as you're telling us, then he should be here right now so we can see him serving in the temple. And that's why you have verse 4. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Do you know what it's saying? That if Jesus had remained here and wanted to serve in the temple made by human hands, as opposed to the sanctuary in the heavens made by God, if he wanted to do that, he actually would not be able to. Because there are already men who do that, men who are qualified to do that by the prescription, verse 4 says, of the law. And what is that prescription? It means, among other things, you had to be through the lineage of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. But Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so if you are here, he couldn't do that anyway. And if you'll just look back at chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews says that very thing. Verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14. It is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So if he were here, he would not be able to serve in the temple because he's not a Levitical priest. But from chapter 4 and verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews has sought to show that Jesus is a high priest after a different order, after the order of Melchizedek, whose beginning we do not know, whose end we do not know. But he is a high priest forever, Psalm 110 and verse 4 prophesies of Jesus. And so even if he were here, Friends who say, I can't see him, I can't touch him, therefore he's inferior, therefore it's not real. Even if he were here, he would not be able to serve in the temple made by human hands. Verse 5 says this. They, those Levitical priests, serving now in the temple, 
They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, quoting God now, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mount. So the temple that you see now, the sanctuary that you see now in Jerusalem is but a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Verse 2 tells us Jesus is serving in the sanctuary in heaven, not built by human hands. A copy and a shadow. What's it all mean? Well, the time your New Testament was written, there were three major influences that were current at the time. There was the religious influence, political, and cultural. Three. The religious influence of those reading this letter was the religion of Moses, Mosaism. The religion that Moses laid down from God in the first part of your Bible. The religion was Mosaism. The government was Roman. The political system was the Roman political system. But the culture was Greek. And people in the New Testament were immersed in Greek culture, including things like Greek philosophy. Now, those of you that have had the misfortune of taking a philosophy class, as I have, stay with me for a moment. I'll try to do it quickly, okay? When I was in college, I took a few philosophy classes, and they argue about the craziest things. How do we know the nature of existence? This was a big debate. And so, how do we know, for instance, that that chair exists? That we were seated upon? And then these arguments would spill out into the, out into the parking lot, and I was young and stupid enough to keep arguing. And so we're out in the parking lot, and I'm arguing with a fellow student about the existence of material things. And I say, I think you have enough faith that these things exist, and I think I can prove it to you. Let me get in my car. Let me come at you at 50 miles an hour, and you will exercise your faith very quickly that that car exists. Those are the kinds of things we would debate. And amongst philosophers, none is considered greater than Plato. And Plato saw two worlds. It was called Platonic dualism. And there was what he called the, the real world, and then some have called it the, the unreal world, the world we're in. The real world is beyond us. And it's the world where the real, original article exists. The real, or the ideal, it was sometimes called, would exist. Or the true form, sometimes called. And so for Plato, there was like an idea or a true form of a chair, and these are only copies and shadows of the real chair. I'm not making that up. Now, that was some of what influenced those in New Testament times. Two worlds, what was real and what was actual, the forms, the ideas. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them that indeed there is a greater form beyond the one that they can see. And he quotes Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40, the Lord speaking to Moses. And if you were to read Exodus 25, you have for 39 verses these meticulous instructions about the way to build the tabernacle, the way to, to build God's house. And at the end of that, the Lord says to Moses, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That word pattern 
is more than just verbal instruction. It seems likely that Moses was privileged to see a version, a model of what God wanted him to do on earth. And so Jesus is seated in honor, interceding on a glorious throne. It is his sanctuary. And what you see here is only a pale shadow and copy of the real article, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you want a glimpse of that, just use your sanctified imagination. Imagination is not one of the gifts that God has bestowed to me. I wish I had more of it. As I read God's word and I think about heaven and I think about the splendor of what is there and what we will one day be a part of. But I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. As it describes the throne of God or read the prophet Ezekiel as it describes the splendor and the beauty and the glory of the throne of God. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing on earth that can compare to it. The writer of Hebrews reminds his readers. Verse 6. The ministry Jesus has received now as a high priest is as superior to theirs, the Levitical priests, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it's founded on better promises. The writer of Hebrews gets deep, doesn't he? And it's early, and I'm getting warm. Is anybody else getting warm and, and tired of hearing me talk? Well, stay with it, okay? You have no choice, really. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. And the word that's translated mediator, mesites, is the Greek word. It comes from a word that means in the middle. And a mesites or mediator is one who stands in the middle between two people and brings them together. When Job was desperately anxious that somehow he should be able to appeal his case to God. You all remember that? Job was afflicted with much trial. And he didn't know why this was happening. And his friends were saying, Job, you must have some hidden sin somewhere. And, God, and Job is saying, God, I, I need to plead my case before you. I need to be able to come before you. And as he was in that desperate condition, he says in Job 9, if only there were someone to arbitrate, to mediate between us, to lay his hand on both of us. The answer to Job's plea is the Lord Jesus Christ. God and man who stands in the middle between the two and can lay a hand on and bring both together. Moses is called a mediator, a mesites, because he brought the law from God to men. And so Paul writes in Galatians 3, the law was put into effect by a mediator. In Athens, Greece, there was, at the time the New Testament was written, a body of men, they were all 60 or older, who could be called upon to act as mediators when there was a dispute between two citizens. And their first duty was to effect a reconciliation between them. In Rome, there was the arbitri. It's Latin from which we get arbitrator. It was their duty to bring disputes to an end. And in the Greek legal system, Amesites was a sponsor, a guarantor. He provided bail for a friend who was on trial. He guaranteed a debt or an overdraft. 
This mediator, or mesotes, was the man who was willing to pay his friend's debt to make things right again. The mediator is the man who stands between and brings together two other parties in reconciliation. And Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is the perfect mediator. He stands between us and God. He opens the way to God and to reality. He's the only one who can affect reconciliation between God and men, between the real and the actual. In other words, Jesus is the only person who can bring us into real life. And so, friend, Christian friend, you should never find yourself saying, Christianity is not about the real world. <laughs> it's about a world more real than you can see. More real than your eye could ever know. Your mind could ever conceive of. And the way we know it is through the one who has made it known, revealed it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come from there, who has gone back to there, and has told us all about it. Now, beginning in chapter 8, this word covenant occurs 16 times. And it becomes a central subject now in the next few chapters. The word used for covenant is one that emphasizes a unilateral promise, like a will. And so it's a matter of grace. It's not something we do to get this new covenant now that Jesus is the mediator of. is a unilateral promise that he has made and he carries out. Jesus is the way to reality. And secondly, notice, Jesus is the way then to a relationship so that we can experience and know that reality. And how is that? Because he gives us the ability to have a relationship with God. Verse 6 again, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to the Old Testament priests as the covenant of which he's the mediator, superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and he said, and now the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The old covenant. The one that was mediated through Moses. The people did not have the ability to fulfill. And so God found fault with them. They couldn't fulfill it. And God in his grace says, I will give a new covenant. A new covenant that does not depend upon them. They have shown themselves to be weak and unable and Jeremiah chapter 31 announces that new covenant. And Jesus has inaugurated 
Jesus has cut with his blood that agreement, that new covenant. It will be fulfilled in all its splendor with the land promises and all that God gave to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in the future. But we, in the here and now, benefit from the salvation promises of that new covenant that Jesus has ratified with his own blood. That's why at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, the New Testament, in my blood. And he cut a new agreement, better than the old, that did not depend on the weaknesses of the people. Paul writes about those contrasts in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The new covenant is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul goes on to say in that chapter that the covenant of Moses brought death and condemnation. Now, how is that? Is it because the law that God gave through Moses and the instructions that he gave were somehow bad? Not at all. In fact, the Bible has many positive things to say about the law that God gave mediated through Moses. But there were two chief functions of that law. One was to reveal, to make known God and his, his moral character. And another was to regulate. The two chief functions were to reveal and to regulate. And as a vehicle of revelation, making God known and his moral character known, the law was very holy and righteous and good, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. But as a vehicle to regulate the behavior of people and their moral obligations, the covenant that God gave through Moses did not provide, hear this, the ability to perform what it demanded. Because of that, And because of the sinfulness of the people, the law is described as unable to make us alive, Galatians 3.21. It's described as involving a curse, Galatians 3.13. It's described as bringing us into condemnation and death, Romans 7 and verse 10. So do you see what's happening here? All the people that were part of the house of Israel and the house of Judah were part of the covenant that God mediated through Moses. But that covenant could not bring about in itself what it demanded. Some people experienced what it demanded because they were saved, we would say. The Holy Spirit moved upon them and they were motivated to do what the law said for the right reasons. And we'll see them in heaven. But there are others who were under that covenant who never did see its promises fulfilled and never will. God has now given a new covenant. And every last person who comes under the terms of the new covenant, every last soul, will see its terms fully fulfilled in their life. Not one will be lost. Why? Because it no longer depends on our ability. It depends upon his promise. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to communicate. And so this new covenant gives us the ability to relate, to be related to God and to what's real. But notice in your outline as well, it gives us the knowledge to relate. Verse 11. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them 
to the greatest. Everyone under the new covenant, not just some, is by definition saved and has the gift of the the Holy Spirit and thus has this intimate relationship with and knowledge of their God. Every last one. It gives us the ability, it gives us the knowledge, and then notice verse 12, it gives us the freedom to be involved in this relationship. For I, verse 12, will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. I say this new covenant into which we enter when we come to Jesus, that he ratified with his own blood, gives us the freedom for this relationship. Why? Because all of our sins, thanks be to God, all of our sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. And so now I have the confidence, and you can and should, if you've come to Jesus, have the confidence every moment of every day to be able to serve him with joy, come what may. No fear in, no guilt in life, no fear in death, the songwriter has said. It's not that I never feel guilty for things that I've done. I do and you do. But I have no ultimate guilt before the judgment bar of God because the guilt was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ and has been paid in full on his cross at Calvary. And so the new covenant is superior in its power and in its knowledge and in its freedom. It's also superior in its longevity because you know how long it lasts? Forever. Chapter 13 and verse 20. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 tells us that the new covenant is an everlasting covenant. And so what's real, friends? The songwriter said there is a higher throne than all this world has known. Where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. And before the throne will stand made faultless. Through the Lamb, believing hearts find promised grace. Salvation comes. Hear heaven's voices sing, their thunderous anthem rings. Through emerald courts and sapphire skies, their praises rise. All glory, wisdom, power, strength, thanks, and honor are to God our King who reigns on high forevermore and there we'll find our home our life before the throne your life is not just here your life is hid with Christ in God and it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when we see him we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is And there we'll find our home. Our life is before the throne. We'll honor him in perfect song where we belong. And he'll wipe each tear-stained eye as thirst and hunger die. The lamb becomes our shepherd king. We'll reign with him. Life is more than we can see. And Jesus is the one who enables us to see it.
Let's bow together. We thank you, our Father, for the reminder of the marvelous work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did and is doing what no human priest could ever do. He had no sin of his own, therefore he was able to offer himself, not offerings for himself. And he has been able then to ratify with his blood a new and better covenant in which we participate. Thanks be to God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, enabling us to do what you require. We thank you for the intimate knowledge that we have of you because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the freedom of no guilt before a holy God because Jesus has taken our condemnation upon himself. We thank you that this covenant will never change and lasts forever. Lord, help us then to believe that what is real is beyond what we can see. And help us like men of faith from days of old to look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And in the meantime, as we sojourn in this fallen world with all of our difficult circumstances, may we never be people who despair because we only see what is in front of us. Help us never to say our world is falling apart. The world we inhabit with you can never fall apart. Help us, therefore, to be people who go from this place with confidence, renewed vigor and joy because of the reality that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. We thank you for it, and we thank you for him, and we pray in his name. Amen.